Okay, we're still waiting for some people. Um, I figure we just start 4.15 now, my time. Um, thank you all for joining me. I'm just glad to talk to uh, Gary firsthand. Some of you, the names I've seen before, Jason's, Lindsay Ann for sure. But, uh, I mean, there's a lot to talk about. I mean, there's a lot of things happening. I'm sure all of you, many of you have followed this whole Bob Ruff situation, so-called, in large quotes, truth and justice, unquote. And, uh, you know, maybe we can start off with something. What would you like to talk about, Gary? Well, I think um, Adam Galvin suggested we dispel some of the myths that surround the case, particularly the myths of black T-shirts and Metallica and uh, Damien and Jason being sort of arbitrarily picked out of a crowd just because they were a little different than the rest of the kids. Uh, as, as you know, the documentaries contain virtually not, none of the really, really negative information that's on the record about Damien with his mental health problems, his blood drinking, and et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I, I just think it's good, and not that that makes him guilty of murder, but it certainly it indicates why he became part of the reason he became, they became interested in him is because he had this violent history right. and there were factors that quickly came to play in that, but that's not the only reason, but it had nothing to do with black t-shirts and nothing to do with Metallica. And that didn't come through. Yeah. Lindsay, you're, Pinging is what you're doing. Yeah, no, well, it's, it's good that you bring up that point, Gary, because if you talk to people local, and you know the local scene there is good, better, as good as anybody else in this case, is that during that era of 1993, all the kids wore metal shirts or a lot. There's a significant proportion of those people wearing Metallica, Iron Maiden shirts or whatever, so it's kind of silly to think that they were the only one in that part of town, you know, middle class, mid to lower class town that, you know, were, were wearing this kind of scrappy teenage t-shirts. I think that's, that's definitely a myth that should be permanently dispelled from anybody's, you know, communication in this case. So. Well, yes. And they were not far from a large town where it was very, you see all sorts of things all the time. And they had many, many tourists coming through that area that were wearing all sorts of our travelers, tourists who were wearing all sorts of garb all the time. And nobody really, you know, it, it would take something pretty, pretty outlandish to consider to draw a lot of staring or a lot of police attention just from what you were wearing. The idea that Jason, who really looked just about like any other kid you could find in Lakeshore Trailer Park, from what I I've seen what I remember, what I understand. Uh, he he didn't look that much different than many of the other kids, and so and he's the one who consistently throws out this myth that the police were picking on him for this reason, for these reasons, rather than the fact that Damien had uh, been sighted walking away from the scene in muddy clothes, which raised a lot of qu- early suspicions, and then he had this disastrous interview with the uh, uh, the police the next uh, the ne- the day after that uh, tip came in and uh, where he the lie detector test right 
yeah, he failed the lie detector test and, and, and basically did a lot of said a lot of things that made him sound like he was a viable suspect. And he effectively became a person of interest at that point. Before that, they were just checking out a list of potential potential people. And there, there were many, many other people that were checked and checked out and uh, who passed, you know, cleared all the hurdles. And it right. And that's. Yeah, that's the other thing you're dispensing with, which is the so-called Damien Eccles tunnel vision they brought up in court, right? Yes, exactly. Um, he was a primary suspect after uh, perhaps the first two weeks or so, uh, partially because he had they had not just in addition to the Hollingsworth sightings and his own actions and behaviors, but he had uh, uh, people that there were people who were coming forward who were saying that Damien had told them things that made them suspicious about, about his p- potential role. And, um, you know, there were people who were, you know, they had people like LG Hollingsworth and Damien, Deanna Holcomb who failed the one question on there on the, on the, on the polygraph that they failed was, do you know who did this? And they both, both failed that question. And the question was, they said, their explanation was that they knew Damien had done it, though neither one of them had any concrete proof, but they knew him well enough. And both of them knew him very well that they were convinced that he had done it. And that's he they weren't the only people, but they knew him very, very well. Right. Well, Deanna was his former girlfriend at, at some point, right? Yeah, oh, yes. The uh, prior to the uh, they broke up in May 1992. Gotcha. So it was yeah. a year ago, and she was the one that, in the court records, drew that that depiction of child sacrifice, some baby around around a bunch of tombstones in front of a full moon, yeah. very yes, cold charged, which nobody ever really yeah. wants to talk about. Yeah. Nobody well, on no, the she, reporter side. She she had said, and I, I know some people don't really get into the occult connections here, and you and I share some 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 views that are similar on this. But uh, she had said that she practiced black magic and that Damien practiced black magic. And and uh, honestly, a lot of the initiation that he had into th- these magical practices came through her. Uh, according to what I understand, he says he has a different description of this and maybe he had some passing interest in it. But he got very serious when he hooked up with her. Right. And he I mean, she said that they would say publicly that they were into white magic, even though they were black magic. Right. Do you remember that part? Right. of the- Right. Or Damien said he was into gray magic. Right. So that's another kind of myth. Like these guys are, you know, purely Wiccans or whatever. <clears throat> um, right. So that's right. you know, tunnel vision is a myth. Black clothes is a myth. No occult influence myth even before uh, May 5th, 1993. Right. What other? On June 2nd, on June, speaking of the tunnel vision on June 2nd, Aaron Hutchinson was shown a lineup of photos of, of people that were at least potential suspects or persons of interest. This was the day before uh, Jesse Miskelly confessed. And there were six people there, six photos. None of them was a photo of Damian Eccles. Or Jason Baldwin. Interesting. So it, that laid that laid into the investigation before the arrest. They were still looking at many other people. 
not many other, but they had a, a list of people. I mean, there was still, I mean, we know that because there's a long video of the police doing a surveillance at the skating rink. Right? That, uh, oh, yeah. And so they know they saw Damian Eccles is in that. And also Jason, uh, Jesse missed Kelly. So that also kind of dispels this other myth that they didn't know each other. That visual shows that they're in the same kind of environment at the same time. Uh, Miss Kelly and uh, Eccles, right? Right. Yes. And uh, there's little, de- I mean, there's a lot of uh, evidence to suggest that Jace- Jesse knew Damien well enough to introduce uh, Damien to Vicki Hutchison. And you can believe whatever you want to about the interactions there, but they definitely did meet each other and they had some sort of interaction at some point. And that was through the agency of, of Jesse Miskelly because he was very well acquainted with, with uh, Damien. Uh, Jesse was also described by Deanna Holcomb as being somebody who hung out with, with uh, Damien. She, and again, she's somebody who's was close to him. I mean, he, she was the love of his life and his girlfriend and all this. And uh, uh, so they all knew each other. Uh, Jason and Jesse had been friends since uh, they both lived in the same trailer park from from uh, a much uh, from uh, maybe the fifth and sixth grade or even younger. So they knew each other very well. Gotcha. Well, another another myth we can dispense with is a myth that propounded by John Douglas of the FBI that these guys didn't have a criminal history before, you know, they were arrested in June 3rd, 1993. You recall anything? I mean, the reason I bring that up is because you mentioned the name Deanna Holcomb. It was because of his, Eccles' relationship with Holcomb that that first charge was, right? I mean, didn't they get busted in a trailer? Yes, they got busted in a trailer. I don't want to monopolize the whole conversation here. But they they got busted in a trailer and... That prompt then uh, Eccles was taken into custody and she was taken into custody. He threatened suicide, so they sent him to uh, Charter Lakeside in uh, Little Rock, um, and that was his first trip to um, uh, a mental health mental mental hospital that year. Uh, he ended up back at uh, uh, another. He was in, uh, placed into custody again. Um, at uh, St. Vincent's in Portland after a lot of different stories about this, all from the, the same ridiculous sources, which is uh, uh, Joe Hutchinson, his father, and, and uh, his mother, who couldn't ever say, tell the same story straight uh, twice in a row, and uh, but it, it, it described these violent, these violent threats he was making. He was going to cut his mother's throat. He was going to eat his father with a spoon. He had knives in his room, which suddenly turned into spoons later. Right, stirring chocolate, but but originally Joe Hutchinson had said he had these knives, and then uh, in September he got he came back uh, to Arkansas without uh, violating his probation. He was put into custody, and he attempted to drink blood from this other kid at uh, the, the facility in Jonesboro. So they sent him again to the hospital in in Charter and. And uh, and all along, it was well documented his preoccupation with violence, with with uh, threats, with uh, you know he was bragging about drinking blood and talking about how he gained godlike powers through through the drinking of blood. 
which uh, the psychiatrist at trial described as very disturbing. And, you know, it's pretty unusual. And then, uh, so there was all that. Plus he had uh, this history of uh, of bragging to his friends or, well, in one case, he killed this dog, this great Dane in the famous instant. And this was something that was brought forward by Jason's cousin. It wasn't some sort of prosecution witness. It was Jason's cousin who described Damien beating this dog to death and then uh, and harvesting its skin and skull. And he also, uh, uh, Chris Luttrell des- described Damien telling him about the t- animals he tortured, that uh, Damien had tortured. And so there's, there's all this history of, of torture and violence with him. Uh, but that Jason, dog, the dog yes. evidence is also consistent with Jesse's uh, confession because he said yeah. that they tortured dogs and hated them. And, and Jason, Jason was involved in a lot less that we on record, but according to his own school papers, he had, you know, he violently took care. Of, he basically choked his little brother out in a violent confrontation. And according to Mara Leverett's dark spell, he, took a baseball bat to his drunken stepfather one evening and, and ran him out of the house. So he had a history of violence and it was a very violent household, apparently from what he, what he has told his favorite author. Right. Didn't uh, he have a, a record of, um, uh, stealing stuff? Too? Yeah. Shoplifting and, shoplifting and vandalism. He'd been in trouble for both those things. Jesse Miskelly had been in trouble on several different occasions for beating up, uh, really smaller children, girls, I mean, you know, beating up 10-year-old, 8-year-old girls, 10-year-old girls, hitting them with bricks, sticks, rocks, etc. And he had a long, long history of violent acting out as a child. He hadn't killed anybody up to that point, but he was extremely violent. And his family, uh, it was a very violent household, apparently. Yeah, um, he had a reputation for brawling, right? Brawling and fighting and, you know... Yes. And this is this is what John Douglas wrote in his book. Damien and Jason had no indicative violence in their past. This is like one of their people, so I know. I know. It's laughable. It's just it a total I mean ridiculous. and then I wrote I wrote St. Dibblebiss said Eccles tried to scratch his eyes out. Laura Maxwell, Eccles threatened to kill her brother and her parents. Charter Hospital, his own mother, was most concerned about son not le- learning to deal with anger and rages. So it's just it's threatening. That was another thing that was important that the West Memphis police stated is that he was he was involved in terroristic threatening. It was one of the charges in that arrest in '92, right? Right. He he threatened to kill uh, uh, Deanna's parents. Yeah. He threatened to kill her new boyfriend and put his head in the front lawn. He threatened to kill Shane Divil Bliss's uh, Divil Bisses. I keep mispronouncing his name. Oh, uh, Divil Biss uh, Biss's cousin. He was going to kill him uh for i'm not sure why exactly but he he threatened him and you know there was a long list of people he'd made these threats these kinds of threats to um so you know it's it's not it's totally unreasonable to suggest he had no history of violence when in fact it's well documented that he had quite a history of violence right so that's another myth right that's the Um, what other, what's the other myth? How about the Jesse Miss Kelly is, has the mind of a six year old myth. I mean, we know that he's, he's, he scored, he, there was at least one IQ score 
that had him at an 88. And it was known that he was babysitting somebody else's kids, right? So it would be hard to believe that somebody would let him babysit kids if he was really younger in his mental age than the children he was babysitting. Does that make he, sense? Yes. His his verbal IQ was pretty low. But he, his performance IQ on previous testing before the trial came up was pretty high in the mid to upper 80s, which is almost – I mean, it's sort of, it's in the normal range. It's kind of a little bit low. And that means if you're good at uh, mechanical, uh, putting things together and taking things apart and understanding how things work, you're just not, what he was not adept at was uh, academic subjects at all. His reading, reading was at a very low level, though he had some reading. And, you know, he's not a smart kid, but they, uh, he was, he uh, tested Highly, very, very high on the scale for malingering uh, on these t- these other tests they'd given in pre- preparation for trial, which indicated that he was fudging the, the results of the test, uh, and that's just the sort of thing he would he would be inclined to do, which shows a little cunning on his part, which is not something you ex- really associate with a somebody who has the mind of a small child. Right, you, small, you, small you can see also child. in his confession on June 3rd, 1993, that he was kind of prevaricating. He was distorting facts, and it, which he admitted later, too. So it shows, you know, the capacity to, you know, prevaricate, deceive, right? I mean, you yes. Agree? Yes. Um, any other myths that we can address? Uh, what about the myth that the cops only looked at Damien Eccles? I mean, we know from the records that, they took a bunch of I mean, the court records are correct. I mean, the police records are correct. They took at least 20 or 30 men who were like local pedophile, sex offenders, criminals, and took them out of a list of possible perpetrators, right? I mean, did you see that yes. in your research hearing? Yes. In fact, uh, Randy Sanders, who was one of the, uh, the family friends of the uh, Eccles Hutchison family, was a registered sex offender, and he's at, he was one of the people that the police checked out. Just as an example, they were th- they did a very thorough job with that. They thought because of the way they the boys died, there might be a Vietnam veteran involved, and they went they uh, went down a list of local veterans that might that they might have some concern with. Uh, they talked to uh, all sorts of other people. All the all the uh, uh, local kids that were involved in, you know, right. Violence. They did a house to house kind of a survey too. Didn't they? If I remember in the records, there was evidence they went and talked to everybody locally. Is that true? Did you see that? Well, I think Bob Ruff has a point in that they did, they did do a pretty thorough survey of the neighborhood around uh, Todd Moore and uh, J- Jason, uh, 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 Christopher Byers uh, house houses but they didn't really go far enough. They didn't really do much of a survey down in uh, the uh, the by uh, the Hobbs area, the uh, branch uh, Stevie Branch's home. So um, he's he's some valid criticism there. The police didn't their investigation was far from perfect, but they did they did go to uh, around and knocked on a lot of doors at the Mayfair apartments to see if anybody had said anything. There were some people who had done some, who were acting suspiciously and 
Mayfair Apartments, which was right across the, the bayou from the woods, and they investigated them, uh, subjected some of them to uh, polygraph testing and so on and so forth. So there was a lot of that going on. They weren't just sitting back and uh, saying they've got their man with Damien Eccles three days out and not looking at anybody else far from it. They did something like 70 polygraph tests and they used polygraphs to weed out potential suspects. The problem, one of the problems for the West Memphis Three is Jason never cooperated at all with the, the police which raised suspicions because they, they, you know, he's entitled to do that, but it does raise suspicions. Why would you not want to clear yourself if, you know, you had nothing to do with this and he made no effort to do that whatsoever. And the other two killers uh, both failed polygraph tests. So just, you know, it's not, wasn't admissible in court. People can argue about the results and all that, but when it, you know, it's one of those things that, you look at the totality of the evidence and the polygraph testing suddenly becomes very important. Right. Jesse confessed to uh, Buddy Lucas the day after the murders. When Lucas was tested on the polygraph concerning this, uh, the polygraph indicated that he had been telling the truth about this. The same thing is true for Ken Watkins. When he was tested, he he had originally told one story. He, he, like a lot of these people, he told various stories. But he eventually said that uh, that uh, Eccles, he failed his failed a polygraph test, and he gave a story about how Eccles had confessed to him two days after the wow. killings. And there's a, a video of the, uh, the that confession, the first one you were talking about, right? Didn't they videotape that? Or he's talking about Jesse giving him the dirty shoes. And yes, stuff. yeah, Buddy Lucas. Yeah, Buddy there's a Lucas, video yeah. of that. Yeah, yeah. And there's a transcript. There's a transcript of that. But uh, it's the video's perspective. Uh, you can see that uh, Buddy Lucas is obviously not much more intelligent than Je- than Jesse Miskelly. Yeah. And the truth is, is Jesse Miskelly did not stand out uh, among the populace there. In any large degree, he he uh, he was not well educated, and he was basically just goofing around, not really doing much. But so were a lot of other people. He was nothing unusual. Gotcha. What other myths? Any other myths that you would like to address? I've talked for quite a bit. I'd really like somebody else to chime in. Okay. Just, just... Let's see. I think there's somebody here who says West Memphis Three. Who is that? Can you talk? Hello? Let's see. I think you're muted. You need to unmute your you need to unmute yourself. Somebody. Let's see, let me West Memphis three TJ. Who is that? Is it Truth and Justice. Yeah, that's you. Is that you? No, no, I'm Lisa. Okay. Um I have a question though. Um they talk about the corruption in the police department. Has anything ever come up about, you know, other corruption or was anything exposed? Because I can't imagine that in that small town it would have been so important that they've covered everyone. Barry, anybody? Who's the, who's the, well, I mean, I know, but I'll give somebody else a chance. To. I'm trying to get this one person to unmute the, this. West the, Memphis uh, 3, Truth and Justice, who's that? 
there, there was there were some investigations involving the drug task force that really had nothing to do with the, the West Memphis Memphis three case, except some of the detectives who were involved in the drug task force were involved in some of the investigation of the West Memphis three case. Uh, and the corruption was in, they, they had they did a lot of big drug bust because of the, where it is. There's a lot of truck stops there. Uh, it's a confluence of two major interstates. And so they did a lot of drug busts there, and there was a lot, there were a lot of drugs flowing through the area, and they had a lot of stuff in the evidence room, and there were some things missing from the evidence room, and they thought that the police had confiscated some drugs, some guns, I, I know they had those things, and maybe some other things. It had nothing to do with the West Memphis Three case. It was not some huge, huge uh, thing where they'd taken out millions of dollars or something. It was relatively... Real, it was real, but relatively minor. But there, there was evidence of corruption, and eventually the state police did come back with a report naming some people who were involved in that. Again, it had nothing to do with the West Memphis Three case, and it's hard to see how that investigation would somehow play into the actions of the detectives involved in in the in the uh, investigation of the murders. Thank you. Okay. Any other, uh, what about, uh, there's a, a question in the chat about alibis. We know that this is a question that's popping up with the so-called Bob Ruff investigation, but um, of one of the whoppers that was told this week or within the last seven days was that Jesse Miss Kelly's Bible confession equals an alibi because he, uh, clearly states that he was back at the trailer park between 6.30 and 7 on the night of the murders, which then, if you look up one of the police officers, Dollar Height said he didn't see him there. But um, that's uh, that was an interesting thing. So maybe we can talk about uh, the alibis. Does anybody want to chime? Inca, are you there? If you are, can you unmute, unmute your uh, your channel? Jason, do you want to chime in, or are you just listening? I guess he's just listening. Oh, Roberta Glass made it. Roberta, yeah, finally. Uh, I mean, am I you? still on? Your mic is on, so we can hear you. Hello? Did you hear? Yeah. <clears throat> Roberta, are you there? Yeah. Can you Wait, can you hear me? I can hear you, and I can semi-see like a I just quarter of your head now. <clears throat> All right, we've got a question. Bob Ruff said that in the survey, they gave the answers to Damien, and he just agreed with him. Didn't Damien testify in court that those were his words? So that was the initial, I think the survey that took place May 6th or May 7th. Does that sound right? Does that sound right to you? I think that there is a transcript of that survey. <clears throat> Would have been the uh, ninth, eighth. Eighth, eighth or ninth, gotcha. <clears throat> Ninth of Sunday, he um, his source for that is Damien Eccles, and Damien is a proven liar. And we could go into a long list of reasons why I would say that, but it's just a fact. Virtually everything he says is some sort of distortion or lie. 
Uh, Jason's not any better. In fact, he's worse in some respects. But, uh, uh, you know, it's hard to believe that the police police told uh, Damien Eccles whenever they were questioning him, and there's no evidence they did this, that, you know, when they asked him how the killer felt that the police told Damien to to say the say the killer was happy. I mean, I, it, it requires a certain mindset to even come up with that that kind of answer, uh, particularly you know in a serious case like this. Uh, and it suggests among all those all those answers were very suggestive of someone who had, in, in some cases, he had knowledge that was not known to the general public, such as some of the some of the that one was cut up more than the other and that they were drowned. All that information was not known to the public. The public had been given a totally different impression from a story that appeared in the commercial appeal on Friday, uh, that Friday that was based on uh, uh, overhearing a state police conversation. I knew the reporter who did, who did that, who heard the thing and did the story. And uh, he was quite good at that sort of thing. But the point being is is the information and the broadcast was not correct and it they had all three boys being mutilated. Damien had knowledge that that wasn't the case. Then he claimed on the stand that he had read it in the newspaper and that's how he knew that. So they bring in the newspaper pages and say, look, uh, copies of the newspaper and say, where did you find this, uh, Damien? And he had to confess that he didn't read it in the newspaper. So where did right. Damien get that information? Well, Damien got his information from being at the scene and knowing what had been done. And there's really no other good explanation for that. Uh, and that's just one example. He, he uh, I forgot what the question was. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> that was the, uh, the one of, of the, the question was, what was the, Bob Ruff had said that Damien in the survey had gotten his answers from the cops. But there's yeah. no evidence of that. And see, <clears throat> without getting into the big thing about Ruff, Ruff, the only people that Ruff is apparently is talking to are John Mark Byers, uh, David Jacob Jacoby, uh, Jason Baldwin. He wants to. He wanted to talk to Jesse Miskelly, but Miskelly wouldn't talk to him. Right. And Damian Eccles. So he's going to the usual suspects in every sense of the word to get their version of of the truth. All those guys are, have been very public in the past about wh what they think about the case. He's not going to get any new information from them, and he's not going to get any objective information from them. He's not going to learn anything new from them, but he continues to go there and resi actively resist going and talking to anybody else who might actually know something. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's remarkable. I guess we'll find out what his interview with Lisa O'Brien went but it seems like he's kind of trying a little bit of – he seemed a little hesitant in the last two recent podcasts where he's very clear saying it's his opinion, it's my opinion. You know, that, that sounds like somebody's talking to him. Well, yes. <clears throat> his, uh, his breakdown of, of uh, Damien Eccles' alibis is really somewhat ridiculous in that he had two people that – or actually four people that – or more who were at uh, uh, a casino in, in uh, Tunica County, Mississippi, that he claims are alibi witnesses. They're not alibi witnesses. Uh, yeah. He cl claims that uh, Eccles' family's an 
are alibi witnesses. They, he gives two different stories. Eccles does. He says he was on the phone all evening with these girls. None of the girls, according to their statements to police, said or have ever said they were on the phone with him that evening. In fact, they all, if you look at the record, they all said they didn't talk to him. From, I mean, the last one he talked to was at 4.30 in the afternoon, and he didn't talk to, uh, to uh, Jennifer Bearden again until not at least 9.20 that night, and it might have been later. She admits later. Uh, so the phone call phone call girls are no alibi. Uh, the the Jason's uh, Damien's father couldn't say couldn't say that he was along on the Sanders trip. So it really raises the question: Why did he actually know? His mother gives did gave a lot of really incoherent answers about. Or the father leaving the night before and then no it wasn't then it was later and it's just she didn't have a lot of credibility and then michelle well, his, his sister said yeah he was sitting there watching the 90210 with us over at this friend's house the little friend there is 12 years old she said he was there but how credible is she and actually she her testimony was discredited because she said it was right before this her boyfriend's concert and it turns out the concert was two two weeks or so later uh there were two girls across the street that said they saw him saw him going in the house but it's very questionable whether one of those is even credible at all and the other one i you know maybe she is but she didn't testify in court so you know and she has never been caught never been challenged in any way so you know, I don't know how credible she is. So right. he has an alibi, but he has an ironclad alibi that nine people saw, but it's completely different than the alibi that Damien Eccles put up on, on in court, right? I mean, it's incredible. But there's there's a total discredit. I mean, there's two different alibis. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's it, amazing. It's also, it's also different from the alibi that he publicly states to this day that he was talking on the, on the phone to these girls and says, I, I haven't heard him talk about the visit to the Sanders home in quite a while. I admittedly haven't seen everything he's done, but I don't recall him talking about the visit to the Sanders family. The phone call girls is easily disproven, so I don't know why he's clinging to that. Roberta, are you there? Yeah. How are you? Can you hear me? I hear you very Good. well. Great. Um, we've talked about some of the early myths about the case. I don't know if how much have you been following us since four? Have you Not as closely you... as I like because I've been hung up with Google Hangups. Gotcha. Hangouts. Well, <laughs> hopefully you've learned it's a little temperamental and not that easy to, to opt on. So I understand. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, we're just kind of talking about some of the stuff, uh, taking some questions and stuff like that. But uh, I think that the, well, the most, that's another myth. It really is that Damien Eccles had a valid alibi. Yeah, and I think what, what's interesting to me, I guess, I came, I come from a different perspective. I, I thought after watching the documentaries that they were innocent. I didn't know anything else. I didn't have any other information. I thought it was like a you know, when they got out of prison, I was, like, excited for them. I thought, like, oh, like a, you know, it had, a, justice has been, you know, it had been righted or whatever. So, I, so when I finally looked into the case, I wasn't looking to prove that they were guilty. I was coming from the other, other side. So, and when, 
but when you look at all the evidence against them, it all fits. And for the evidence to fit, for them to be innocent, you have to do so many mental gymnastics of forgetting all the confessions, forgetting whatever you think of um, lie detectors, forgetting that, forgetting that what are the chances that three innocent men have no alibi? What are, what are the chances? It doesn't fit. And I'm surprised. I don't know why I'm surprised, but I always think that a West Memphis Three supporter will leave me some great comment that will just blow me away with some kind of evidence that I've never thought of. But it's just the same talking points over and over and over and over again. You know, satanic panic. You know, other stepfathers that are guilty, a hair. I mean, all the things that have just been disproven. It's it's ridiculous and laughable. It is. At this point, in this long, the case has gone on. I mean, it's what? We're at the 25-year point. They're still going over things that are clearly disproven and just re repeating it all and over and over again. I, I would have a dime for, for how many times a West Memphis Three supporter says to me, lady, you don't have your facts right while giving me completely wrong information as an argument. I've had a complaint. Insulting me. Yeah. You know? I don't like your version of the facts. That's what somebody <laughs> was What do you mean? Like, and they get so really mad that, that I laugh. But it is laughable at this point. How do you say with a straight face that Damien Eccles thought he was dying? He, he was getting, he was pleading guilty because he was dying in prison of some, like, bad eyesight and teeth or some, like, undisclosed illness that's never been revealed. I mean, how do you say that with a straight face? Seriously. It's laughable, ridiculous. <clears throat> if it weren't sad that a child killer is, is, out on, is out with so much support. So much support, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, where do we want to go from here, guys? Do you want to critique Bob Ruff, or what? Uh, do you want to continue with any other additional myths? Is there any myths that we've missed out on? Or how about the how about the how about the myth that uh, the Alford plea is not a guilty plea? You know, do you want to do you want to talk about that myth? I don't know. That's a great one, and then I think also that they wouldn't let them out if they were that that the state of Arkansas really thinks that they're they're innocent and let them out apologetically, like oh sorry, don't sue us. Right. Yeah. We're letting you out because you're innocent. That's certainly a big a big myth. That a lot of people, how about this myth? They got out saying that they were going to look for the perpetrators from the outside. How about how's that going on? I'm, I'm looking for all of those private <laughs> investigators, Tyrone Eckle. <laughs> And it's Baldwin that are looking for Terry Hobbs as the possible perp, right? That and they say that over but you know what I also want to say another interesting thing about West Memphis three supporters? Damien Eccles' words are incredibly important until they're not. Right. You know what I mean? You know, like I do. I do. Well, he said he was gonna look for the real killer during the press conference and he could do more from the outside than the inside, and that's why he was taking the plea and he was dying, and when all that turns out to be a lie, it's not really important anymore. And they they hounded you about satanic panic, how you were a victim of satanic panic until Damien Eccles gets out, devotes his entire life to the occult, and now it's just not important. Right. But he's writing a book called High Magic that's due on Halloween, you know? Exactly. All we're doing is listening to what he's saying. But 
if it doesn't fit the narrative for West Memphis Three supporters, it's instantly forgotten. Yeah, it's incredible. It's incredible. Why is there that disconnect? I mean, how many people are listening to Bob Ruff? What, how, what part of his audience is actually going to go, this doesn't make any sense, I want to read it for myself, and they're actually going to uh, kind of uh, jump ship? I mean, is that going to happen with it? I've, I've seen a couple people stick their head up above the crowd over on his uh, Facebook or on his fan, Truth and Justice fans page, and, man, they, they, they got beat down. It was like the nail got stuck <laughs> up and the hammer got beat down. Like, hold on, I'm starting to think that. I think one of the guys started, I'm starting, starting not to believe this story. And people are like, well, why? <laughs> How many people are going to jump ship? They should be angry, but I, I also find it interesting that people ask me for new evidence that I, as someone who like records videos, should go out and find new evidence and forget the court system and forget cross-examination. What someone would tell me, like Joe Schmo on the street in Arkansas, is more important than what someone testified to under oath in court that could be cross-examined. It's such little Evidentiary respect for hearings, rules of evidence, all this stuff. <laughs> right, exactly. Doesn't mean anything. No. Judge, you know, I, Bob Ruff so, I mean, puts the like court system on like a four, right? Doesn't that how much he trusts it? Four out of ten? <laughs> forgot he said something like that. It's yeah. a fantasy, you know? I, I think the whole Bob Ruff podcast is a fa- I'm sorry, it's a fantasy podcast, you know? A related myth is the idea that uh, these supporters were just like Damien when they were teenagers, and he was just a poor, misunderstood teenager who was, you know, full of angst and, you know, didn't get he's along a, with his parents. He's a goth. He's a goth. Just like it was a <laughs> Just like every other teenager, and he he wasn't. He was somebody who was severely mentally ill. He'd already conceived this idea, according to himself, according to his own story, that he was going to be the world's greatest magician. How many other kids in trailer parks in Arkansas have conceived that as their ambition, life ambition? I would say zero, except for him. That's a good point. And he was actually in the, he was in some kind of process of transformation that he was going to eat Kool-Aid packets to facilitate his transformation into a new being. And that is like a sign of like, whoa, guys, can't you key into that? Or um, can't you understand like this is this is a different level of perception, right? Like he's having kind of and the whole rosy thing where he's talking to some discarnate entity like this is not a near normal kid it's a myth you're absolutely right it's very strange i am what did he write in his thing i'm going to be satan's henchman and ride into heaven and blow it up in a big ammunition dump i can't remember the exact quote but that's where i got the title for my book abomination because he's he wrote abominations are taking place on the earth you know i'm going to be one of them right this is that's very strange ideation it's very strange yeah. not normal so that's another myth he's a normal kid what normal I think, sorry I, I mean i can speak to that because my best friend since the fourth grade is is still a west memphis three supporter and he cried after he watched the documentaries but he's only on the second one so he still thinks john mark byers did it so i mean i can you're making a very important you're making a and really I, important And I tell him facts all the time, and it can't, it like, can't, it's so emotional to him. It just can't, it's a highly, you know, highly intelligent person. It just can't sink in. It's an emotional connection that that film 
made. And I, I think it's, it's really powerful when it, when it does connect with people and that you can't shake it with facts sometimes. You just yeah, can't. Facts. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up because the, the, the second one where they both Jason and Eccles put the blame on John Mark Byers and then now it's Terry Hobbs. So that's another thing that the supporters just cannot grasp is that they've actually changed their potential perp. It's incredible. They said in that movie, in that second one, they were 100% convinced that it was John Mark Byers. I mean, that's off the charts. Like, you can't figure out that they're changing suspects for a reason. That's amazing. And, and the filmmakers paid John Mark Byers to put on that amazing act. And it was an amazing act that he, I, some of it was probably, some of it was sincerely driven by his emotions, but it was an act he was putting on for the most part for the cameras. And it's just, it's, it's amazing to look at, but it's just an act. And he paid a, deep, a very dear price for all that. And then he became the, the suspect for years and years and years and years. And then when a single hair shows up that may or may not belong to somebody else, suddenly he does exactly what was done to him. He goes and points the finger at somebody for which there's no evidence whatsoever. But there was never much evidence against Mark Byers either. He had a pretty darn good alibi for that night from the very start. It would be very, been very hard just based on what was known for him to have pulled that off by himself. It, in fact, it would have been impossible. I'm so, glad you brought that up, that point, Gary, because a lot of people don't know that a lot of these uh, family members are paid or were paid or under contract with HBO, which um, seriously brings into question their credibility if they're getting paid in a contract. And I've had through other intermediaries, um, some of the family members ask for serious money before they ever are interviewed. So, it's, I think that it's important for the public, nons or people who are not supporters or whatever, to understand that those those two last two documentaries were very seriously biased by uh, HBO's involvement in paying some of the family members. Well, I think it's important to note too that the parents of Michael Moore, Her Byers, and Stevie Branch. Really, I got to name them pretty often. Let's keep the focus on who was killed in this and who the real victims are. None of the parents wanted to have anything to do with filmmakers after the first film came out, except Mark Byers, who needed the cash. Who isn't the biological father of son, right? Hmm? He's not a biological parent. No, although he shares some DNA, so there's some question about that. Oh, really? But, uh, uh, yeah, well, you know, the famous uh, Kershaw knife, the blood in there matched both both Chris and John Mark. So the question is, is how did that actually happen since he's the adoptive father? I don't know. You know, it, I don't know how that happened. That was, And I'm not sure how close what that actually proves or disproves, but, um, you know, he didn't do himself any favors with his testimony where he was all over the place about what he actually did with the knife. But, uh, and he, he, and there's very, there's a lot in the, that movie that makes him look very suspicious. If you don't know the facts, I just watched it the other day and I was, and I've been appalled the last two times I watched it about what a piece of just pure propaganda it is. Virtually no facts whatsoever. It's all just it goes right past that and into the emotions. 
Good points. Any other questions or anything, guys? We're we passed the first hour, so I've I've slated another hour if you guys want to go another hour. But uh, we've talked about the myths. Uh, anything else? Roberta, do you want to add something? West Memphis Three TL, who's that? You want to add something? Uh, yeah, Hello. I'd love to hear from some people. Oh, I'm sorry, I'd love to hear from some people that we don't, don't usually hear from. Hi, um, I'm just wondering, um, can anyone hear me? I hear you fine, perfectly. Oh, hi, William. This is um, Inca from West Memphis, uh, the West Memphis 3 uh, truth, uh, pod discussion. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm listening. I'm very, very interested in, in everything that um, everyone has to say uh, in regard to the case and, and so much knowledge and experience amongst the, uh, the people who are present tonight. Um, from my point of view, something I find quite interesting is um, uh, just taking the, the Truth and Justice podcast as an example. It's uh, the role of social media in kind of reinventing history, if you like, um, a kind of revisionist history of the uh, the West Memphis Three case. And it's, I find that quite insidious. And I'm, I, I, I'm quite surprised by the uh, the gullibility of the uh, of uh, Bob Rook's audience in terms of just uh, taking everything at face value and perhaps not doing um, any of their own investigation, you know? Excellent points. I mean, I think that if you look at, I've done some investigating into Bob Ruff, and apparently his work involving serial, which garnered him a lot of fame, uh, involved less than honest or, uh, in you know, investigation with integrity. So I, yes. I think you're right. I think the gullibility is remarkable. I think also, though, it's a really good point. It's not just Bob Ruff. It's the New Yorker magazine. It's the New York Times. Every time they print the wrongfully convicted West Memphis Three, I can't tell you how many times. I mean, the New Yorker is the perfect example because they're famous for not even having a comma in the wrong place. But when I tried to, you know, I wrote a letter, a very angry letter, saying, you know, you can't say that they were released on DNA evidence. That's not true. They took an Alfred plea. It's a guilty plea. It, wasn't, it didn't have to do with DNA evidence. And she said, the, uh, the journalist said, I'm, I'm not going to correct it because that, that, that's, that's true for me, sir. I don't know what she, it was just ridiculous. It was, I, I have the quote somewhere. I have the letter somewhere, but it's close to that, you know. It's true. Yes, DNA I was involved. Yes, and very, very interesting as well because in the UK we have the, uh, the Guardian and uh, the Guardian has, um, since Paradise Lost, uh, the uh, the the um, the series was uh, was released. Um, the Guardian has referred to uh, Eccles, Baldwin, and the Skelly as um, innocent men, um, or as wrongly convicted men. I mean, that that is the the Guardian, which is a kind of you know a cornerstone of uh, quality um, press in in the UK. I mean, it will really show you what PR does when P when murderers have PR agents. It will really show. So it gaslights the American public. So even if you do look into the facts, what are you going to say? The New York Times is wrong. The New Yorker magazine is wrong. The Guardian is wrong. They're all wrong, and I'm right. I mean, it's a bit of gaslighting. That's a good point. It's always the same phrase: in prison for a crime they or convicted for a crime they didn't commit. That's usually the, the second sentence or the first sentence. And all of those articles. Which is right out, of, right out of Eccles' mouth, and I'm sure that's what his attorneys or PR people told him to say. He said, also, the... I'm so sorry. No, Go please ahead. continue. The, also, the personalization of Damien Eccles, I 
get so many comments. What would you do if you were falsely convicted? I mean, there's like a real asso emotional association with him that we're all supposed to feel that he was wrongly convicted. And what would we do? We would plead guilty. We'd all plead guilty. We would all do the same things that he did. And it goes back to the myth that he was just an outcast. That is true. That's true. That's another myth. Okay. I mean, we kind of discussed that about him uh, being a very peculiar character before, you know, he was arrested. He was, he was peculiar during trial as well. Strange things, strange ideations. <clears throat> you know, I mean, there was, they, they never really mentioned this, but the George Woods affidavit, that's part of the court case in 2000, a guy who I talked to still around, still, he didn't want to go on the record with me, but uh I mean, he said it was amazing things. The ideation of Eccles, he thought he was going to be transported to another universe with the gods, you know? And he still sticks by his opinion. Uh, I talked to him within the last year. So that's uh, that's another really? part they don't bring up. Yeah. Uh, can I just... That was a I... that document that was brought up by the defense. And right. The, all, the, all this evidence about his mental illnesses, a great deal of evidence about his violence and his hallucinations... His delusions uh, over over many with many many different professionals. It was brought up by the defense. Yeah, that's a good point. What were you going to say, Inca? Um, I was just thinking that it's it's quite strange that uh, Damien Eccles appeared to be um, in a kind of altered state during his uh, his trial um, and didn't seem to be particularly concerned about the outcome. But the, the really bizarre thing is that, of course, Eccles uh, believed at that time and, and still does in reincarnation. So perhaps Eccles thought, well, if he gets the death penalty, that's not going to make very much difference because he's going to be, you know, uh, he's going to be reincarnated. And of course, he's released 18 years later from jail, and he writes a book. And what's it called? Life after death. It's rather. I, th I find that quite uh, ironic. Didn't he write that in his suicide note that he would be reincarnated? I believe so. Yes. yes. Yeah. yeah. I think another idea that's been. This is more from Bob Ruff than the world in general, but uh, he's been heavily promoting this idea, uh, pushing this idea that that uh, J Jesse Miskelly has these great alibis and this parade of great alibi witnesses, and the three police officers were lying, and if we just believe Stephanie Dollar and Fred Ravel and you know and Dennis Carter and all his little friends from the trailer park, you know which he apparently does, then, you know, we should be aware that Jesse, too, has got this airtight, ironclad alibi, and it's just not so. It's not even close. Um, yeah. Oh, no. It's amazing. So, what else? I mean, maybe we should spend the next, you know, few minutes talking about Bob Ruff's, some specifics about Bob Ruff's analysis of this case i mean the last weekend was a was a real whopper for me but anybody like to not to comment on uh truth and justice i would go for it i think i have a, i have a theory this is my theory i can't prove it because i don't know bob ruff or the ins and outs but 
my theory is that he lost a lot of credibility with when he picked Don as the killer of Heyman Lee. And he thought that the West Memphis Three would be a slam dunk case. And who wouldn't think that with the press that they get and the support that they have? So he went into this thinking that this would really solidify him and legitimize him. And it he found it not such a uh, easy road to hoe. And that's why he's bailing out of it. That's that's my theory. That makes sense. I mean, how soon he keeps saying he's going to bail out of it? When is it going to actually take place? <clears throat> well, just as soon as he he, he he as you know as far as he can go before he has to actually prove anything. He just has to put out a lot of question marks. <clears throat> that's that's, that's that's because you know who is he going to pick if he's not going to pick? Ja I really thought he was going to go with Jacoby. Same and, with me and Hop. You know, I mean, but you can't picture Kobe and you can't really have Hobbs. What is Hobbs doing there with a the candle and do, controlling all those kids? And the Clemente brothers didn't really give him a lot of support. So yeah, it's, it's really tough to put together. Yeah. No, Clemente did not help him with this case. Um, yeah. I mean, it's just going to be an unsub, huh? He's just going to end up and use the word <laughs> unsub, unsub and that'll be it. Mr. Bojangles. Yeah, Mr. Bojangles is it. I mean, I think he's in deep trouble. He's, he's, he's going to have a tough time extricating himself because if he really tries to um, exonerate them in some uh, legal forum, that's just going to be rough. I think that he, if he's in, he's probably anticipating that that's going to be a tough, tough way to go. <laughs> it's it's just about impossible. Today, he, in his Fall Friday follow-up today, he said that he threw out some more hints about what he was going to do, but he doesn't. Have, to me, he doesn't have a lot of credibility about his his plans going forward because he's he's so unclear about what's involved, what he's going to do. He did say he was going to finish up the case, but I don't know that anybody's going to hold him to that. I mean, who could? Um, he said he had interviews with Damian Eccles, Jason Baldwin. I hope to talk to Dan Stidham. He's going to put Lisa O'Brien, which should be should be a really good interview. Probably yeah. the best thing on, on, that you're going to hear all season uh, with Lisa, who really knows her stuff on the case. Uh, this Sunday, uh, and maybe over the next two episodes. And uh, that he said he was going to air all these interviews he had with Damian, Jason, Dan Stidham, if you could get him, and Mark Byers and uh, Jacoby. And except for Jacoby, all the rest of those guys, I mean, they're not going to say anything we haven't heard a hundred times before. I don't know what the point of those interviews would be. I mean, I could see why you'd want to interview them, but we're not going to learn anything from him airing them, not really. Uh, except just the same old bull. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Roberta, do you want to make a comment on that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that people forget that this was a death penalty case. And for some uh, West Memphis three supporters who are against the death penalty, they could just make up, you know, make up as many lies as they wanted to because they felt that the end justified the means, meaning they felt that nobody should die via the death penalty. So it didn't matter what they said. So when you get into the nuts and bolts of the case, there's a ton of evidence against them. It's not like a, it, this is not like a, 
even close case. Yeah, I mean, if you really look at the evidence, it's, it's clear they, to me, they got the right people. If anybody finds a copy of this book, Hermetic Reiki, Mind Magic, can you send it to me? It's, it's an, <laughs> no, I'm serious. It's an underground book. There's no copy. I can't find it available. But make sure you have the right title because there's other Hermetic Reiki books. Um, so anyway, I've been trying to get a copy of this. <laughs> have you seen a copy of this, anybody? Mind Magic? No. There's probably like 10 copies printed in Salem. Yeah, that's it. Some kind of Salem thing. Signed in his blood. <laughs> oh, no, probably wouldn't be surprised. Would not be surprised. You would be the first person I would send it to, William Well, what I haven't seen recently is him um, tattooing anybody. I don't know if you guys were following that whole thing where he was tattooing people with like this kind of his own sign and an X. You guys seen this whole thing? I guess he hasn't been doing it since he left. He has, uh, he, he's giving up being an artist, and maybe that's part of his art. Gotcha. He's and, having a, basically a fire sale. Wonderful art. Yeah. One of the interesting things about this case was that Bob Ruff didn't know about the whole pentagram on the chest of Damien Eccles, you know, that he didn't know that. It was mentioned in the court case. And I thought it was interesting the way that Eccles kind of addressed it when he was asked by Bob, oh, yeah, I've got, uh, you know, I've got a cross on my chest and, I, you know, this thing. You guys see this picture? Yeah. yeah. Can I say something about the tattooing? Please. Well, you know, in New York City, it was illegal to get a tattoo for a long time because of the AIDS crisis. So when I got my tattoo, it was like, you know, in a guy's house in the Bronx, you know, 1992 or something. So it's heavily regulated. So I don't think New York State, you know, is taking too kindly to unlicensed people just randomly tattooing people. It's, you know, a whole process. That's that's my theory on it. That's Yeah, that's interesting. I, I wonder what that is. Have you guys ever seen this picture of Eccles? This is from the court case. I don't think I've seen it in any book where somebody got a picture of him in all black with the pentagram necklace. You guys ever seen this one? Yes. No. No. Yeah, that's, uh, that's another one of those kind of court cases. I also have a black briefcase. That was supposedly not in court records or not. I think that Ruff overlooked it or wasn't aware of it. That is actually in the records as well. Let's see if I can find that. That picture was taken, I think, before the, uh, before the murders. Yeah, probably so. Here's the briefcase. There was a briefcase in... Dominic's room. You can see it in the picture of Dominic's yeah, room. In you fact, see it right there. There's the exorcist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but not much was made of that. I, I'm well, it didn't. Th there was something in the records that they carried drugs around in the black briefcase. Do you remember that? And there was pictures of the kids, or like some of the. There's a story from one person about. The guys would keep pictures of people inside the briefcase. Do you remember that one? Yes, I, I, yes that's right. Miss Kelly, yes. Yeah. Yes, I, I do remember that. Miss Kelly said that in uh, one of his statements. And uh, he mentioned a gun and some drugs in the briefcase. Yes, that's right. Yeah, in so a it, photo, a photo of the three boys. Yes, yes. Yes, correct. And uh, among many other things you could 
read it, it, when you look at the confessions if you listen to Ruff, you would think that Miss Kelly was just agreeing to whatever the police were saying. Well, no, he corrected things through there. And one of the things he corrected was the suggestion that there were there were more that there was more than one photo. And he said, no, it's just one photo. And so uh, he was very insistent about that one photo being in this briefcase. That kind of detail popped up in somebody else's story as well. And then one of the more peculiar things in the case was the persistence, persistent presence of this character that Eccles supposedly called Lucy. Yes. 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 And he's mentioned by not just a few people, but quite a few of the people that that were privy to this sort of information that were he was hanging around with. But the police seemingly could never find this guy and every physical description they had of him. He looked completely, none of the physical descriptions matched in any fashion. Miss Kelly said he looked like um, like Damien, except he had a beard. Oh. At, at one point, I was wondering if he was you know, Joe, Joe, but uh, Joe Hutchison. But, you know, I, I'm, that's just rank speculation on my part. I mean, they do sort of look alike. I mean, father and son, but I, you know. I'm, I, I don't want to be, dwell too much on that because that is just a wild guess at the best. Yeah, I've always speculated. I've wondered who that was in that community as well. But like the Alvis Clem Bly um, statement, the recorded statement of him is really terrifying, but also verifies a lot of stuff that went down in Stonehenge that Bob Ruff won't touch with a 40-foot pole. You know, all this kind of art and, and uh, spray painting and stuff that went on before the murders, things that led up to the murders, you know. Right. There was also some disturbing reports of Ms. of uh, Eccles stalking people and um, girls, young girls. And, um, you know, most of that came out after he was arrested. But the initial report, the, the best initial report came before the arrest. They just didn't. They the teenage girl that reported this didn't name him because she was scared of him, which makes perfect sense. Well, there was another family that went into uh, left a, a police report with West Memphis Three that said he was in the bushes stalking their kids when they were out front. Do you remember yeah. that one? Yes. 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 Yeah. So that's exactly right. And and uh, the buyers had some uh, report, uh, Mark and Melissa both testified that they had uh, somebody in dark clothing that took pictures of their son out in front of the house one Sunday when they gone to flash market or something. And, and I, they never said it was Eccles for sure. And I don't know any way they could actually have verified that. And perhaps it was perfectly innocent. I don't know. But the whole thing was very strange. Yeah, yeah. Um, any, any other comments by anybody about, uh, this Bob Ruff, Bob Ruff's investigation? I just wonder, uh, I mean, my question would be, um, is it really going to end? Is it paused? And, uh, I, I understand from the, uh, the podcast today, uh, Ruff suggested that it was paused for, it was going to be paused, um, for an indefinite amount of time. And I just wonder if it's going to pick up or if it's just going to fizzle out and, and kind of fade away, you know? 
Is well, it actually going to come back? Yeah. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. I don't know. I mean, he's. I, I think he. He first said it was going to pause. Um. You know, three or four weeks ago. So I don't. I don't know what's going to happen. If anybody can figure out what this hand sign he's doing, is send it to me. But I've seen some other people make this gesture. I don't know what. It, I don't know what it's going on with this one. <clears throat> I mean, I think. I mean, William Ramsey, you were really right. You said he. You know, he was giving himself enough rope to hang himself, and, and you were right. Yeah, he's he's not going to be able to come back from from this. I, I don't think anybody who with a knowledge of the case. I mean, this last one was a shocker that <clears throat> Jesse's Bible, you know, confession made made it an alibi. Just as well, I knew he was going to just say it was one confession. I mean, let's just talk about that. Well, good point. You can't talk about six confessions. Yeah, you just have. You to know, I mean, that. he goes into all this minute detail about all this stuff that doesn't matter, but six confessions. Let's just. Let's just concentrate on the one famous one, coerced one, quote unquote. I mean, it's 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 ridiculous. I mean, it's so. I mean, I really thought he was going to be able to. If you, I mean, if you think about it, if you can make up as much evidence as you want and sort of magnify things and omit other things, I thought he was going to make a kind of Frankenstein type, you know, case and really be able to pull something together because I mean. I thought he was going to pull another Don, but I was wrong. So there you go. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll I don't know how he's going to to shut it off and keep his uh, listeners, you know, it's, it's particularly bizarre that he wanted to use the Bible confession as the authoritative source on um, this uh, police visit, but he doesn't, he wants to totally write off all the, uh, that confession and all the other confessions uh, as totally irrelevant, he actually claimed cl- he's claimed repeatedly that there's only really one true confession, and that was the first confession. And then you know, and 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 that wasn't really a confession because it was a for obviously it was a coerced confession with a lot of leading questions. And then when uh, uh, Tim Clemente said that, uh, well, you know, this sounds like a follow up. Uh, to a, an earlier confession, which is exactly what it was, uh, Ruff really didn't have a whole lot to say. <coughs> he, um, he he ended up, you know, sort of uh, peddling uh, there, there, hoping he was. You could tell he was just sort of hoping he could get through this interview with with Clemente without doing too much damage to himself. And he yeah, that's what still, it seemed like. He managed to do that anyway. I think he should rename his podcast, you know, the Forgotten Five, meaning the Forgotten Five Confessions of Miss Kelly. <laughs> right. Yeah, that that was an interesting one. That whole subtitle of the Forgotten West Memphis Three. Like, what are you talking? How about? insulting is that? Really? How yes, that was terrible. That? that was terrible. Really bad. I mean, yeah, we're not, not supposed to be outraged. I mean, we're not supposed to be outraged. And we're not supposed to think the things that are laughable are laughable. It's just, it's strange to me that West Memphis Three supporters, A, they have no answer to why Jesse Miss Kelly confessed so many times in so many uncoerced environments. And secondly, why he's, he doesn't do more interviews, why it's always Eccles out in the front and Baldwin and Miss Kelly's kind of, Never around. Never wants to talk. Why is that? It all fits. That's what I mean when I say all the evidence against them fits. 
as to what we know how human beings act. In my experience on planet Earth, you know, it all fits. And to make it fit the other way, you have to do so many contortions and assume people act, you know, in ways they don't act. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I just don't, I don't, I don't understand how this, this, this farce is going to continue. I don't get it. Um, what else, what else should we cover? Anybody have any ideas? We've got about another half an hour left. I just saw a little message on here, but uh, about, to me, some of the most, most, the most heinous thing that Ruff has done was that awful interview with uh, um, Don Moore. Yeah, yeah. I mean, totally pointless. It was airing of a lot of dirty laundry, and really it was kind of from an aggrieved adult child who was in a conflict with her her parents over some things. And, And it didn't contribute anything to the investigation whatsoever. And the whole thing was just, it was embarrassing to listen to and, and, and it really angered me because it's just, un, it's just simply unfair <coughs> to have this one-sided interview thrown up there for no other purpose than just to incite the listeners into thinking some, thinking, I don't know what the point of it was, but they, you know, come to some new conclusions about things. I don't know what those would be. And, um, <laughs> it, you know, it calls to mind that th- these parents, and this is something that really gets to me and really is a lot of my folk, my, been my impetus all along is these parents have been really betrayed by everyone, the, I'm about the parents of the victims, been betrayed by everyone from the get-go except the prosecution and the police. But these filmmakers use them, and then, then when they actually see the film, they see their son's bodies, is, is in one of the very first scenes out for everybody to see in the most appalling manner. And, it, you know, th- and they were sickened by this. Uh, how do you think that made them feel to see that out for the world to see and see their, their sons degraded and used in that way? It's, it's sickening. It makes me so, I'm sorry, I'm getting angry now. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a touch point for me. And Ruff is perfectly willing to do the same sort of thing with with something like the Don Moore interview to exploit this this pain and hurt that these parents have had for just to get some listeners to listen to his podcast. It's disgusting. Yes, I I, I totally agree, Gary. I think it's it's it really is disgusting. Guys, there. Go ahead and continue, please. Uh, yes, it's just uh, it's coming back to a point um, I made earlier in connection with social media. Um, I really do think that social media uh, lacks the ethics of journalism because I know Gary's talking as a you know as a trained journalist, and uh, he finds that he finds that behaviour very reprehensible. But I think podcasters can get away with things that uh, broadcasters and and journalists can't uh, because there's no regulation of podcasts if you know what I mean. Well, yeah. Journalist, journalism isn't really regulated, but it was self-regulating for a long time by the fact that it would 
<coughs> willingly own up to it, and at least in the states, they would willingly own up to their own mistakes by printing corrections, acknowledging errors. Yeah. Ruff, Ruff does not do that. He may, in passing, say, well, maybe I misstated this. I mean, he did it today about something. I may have misstated this, but, you know, and then he blah, 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 blah. And instead of owning up to the fact that he just simply gets things wrong and he gets things wrong that are unforced errors, he doesn't have to do, he doesn't have to say the things that he says, but instead he just goes ahead and says it anyway. And then he has to go, he should be having to go back and correct it himself and, and setting the record straight, but he doesn't do that. He just moves on. Yes. And, and, um, and it's very disturbing to me because it just violates it violates uh, not just journalism, but just the, the rules of credibility. If you want to build credibility with people, you have to be honest and truthful. And sometimes you have to be on, you have often have to be honest and truthful with yourself. And he's not able to do that. Yeah. <coughs> hey, Gary, Thank you. Gary, can you moderate for about 10 minutes? Gary, I'll be back in five, just a second. I got to do run. Okay. Some just moderate okay. for 10 minutes. Okay. No problem. Okay, somebody, somebody else chime in now. I, I was just going to say, I, I don't, quickly, that that the forum, that podcast, who needs credibility when you, when you get more listeners? And in true crime, you have these podcasts, they want to create mystery and doubt to keep people listening. So credibility is less important sometimes to some podcasters than listeners. And you see that, I was listening to another podcast about Heather Elvis, which is a case that I followed closely, and they were just saying un unknown sources say this and that. It wasn't. It's not a case with a lot of super mystery, but bringing up, you know, just here's like, not even hearsay, rumors as new evidence. So it's a real kind of disrespect, disregard for our legal system and how evidence is really presented and and um, created and, and cross-examined. Well, Roberta, you do a podcast. Do you feel constrained by ethics, self-imposed rules, etc.? I couldn't live with myself if I presented a bunch of, but I'm not, I don't have an investigatory type podcast. I have a kind of critical podcast of court cases it's a little bit different because i'm not an investigator i'm not out doing interviews you know of people involved in in the in a case that's you know i don't know i'm not looking to exonerate people in that way in that manner you know what i mean taking people oh, step by step through a case it's it's really different but I think the public is now expecting it from serial that you go and you investigate it. And in a way a journalist investigates it is, is a little bit different. And what people say to a journalist is different than what they'd say under oath. And I can't remember, I think in uh, the judge who was involved in the serial case called cross examination, the engine of truth. I mean, it's true. I mean, you look at the Oscar Pistorius case as a perfect example of anybody watched him get cross-examined and his entire story crumbled in minutes, in minutes under cross-examination. And Eccles, same thing as far as this alibi. Yes, he can say, I was talking on the phone to, to Bob Ruff, but it falls apart under cross-examination on the stand, you know? Right. And no, no, 
no witnesses were presented to build the case that he was talking to anybody on the phone except his parents who were who were describing conversations they supposedly were were hearing in the next room but they didn't know who he was really talking to um are you back William? I'm back. yes i am this is the picture that we were talking about earlier of two people who made a statement to the police saying they saw Eccles in this bush taking pictures of their daughter so this is from the case files not a lot of people mentioned this about the case, but this is uh, one of the pictures that was in the West Memphis police. Maybe both of you, uh, Gary, can you tell the audience uh, your books and what you've written about the West Memphis Three? And then, Roberta, can you also talk about your podcast, please? Well, I uh, originally put out last year, I put out two books. I originally intended to write one book, but I ended up writing two books. One, the, top, the first, first was Blood on Black. And the second is where the monsters go, and that basically covered this case uh, in some detail. And I, it was as long as it was because I wanted to cover everything. I spent the last year or so condensing those down into uh, a book that's maybe a third of the size of the original book. It's at least half the size, maybe a third of the size of the original books and uh, called The Case Against the West Memphis Three Killers, which is pretty much a self-explanatory title. Uh, they're both available on Amazon. Uh, I worked uh, Briefly, I worked at the Commercial Appeal in Memphis for many, many years, and I worked in West Memphis, uh, worked for the West Memphis Evening Time as a managing editor uh, from 2010 to 2014. So I, I know the area pretty well. Awesome. And then, Roberta, you, on your podcast, you solved the West Memphis Street case. Can you talk about your podcast? <laughs> that is correct. I have a short video that's called West Memphis Three Solved, and it's, I, I guess, my most watched most watched video. Gotcha. So, and I have, a, I have a few other videos about Damien Eccles and his cult-like followers and um, talking a little bit about JT Leroy and um, other, uh, you know, other, other cases and, and, uh, but many about the West Memphis three. You have this case that I have posted up here on the video, which is uh, Amanda Knox with, uh, with Damien Eccles. So you've seen, you've done an Amanda Knox and the title is the Wolf Sheep podcast. Is that right? Or you Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <clears throat> gotcha. Seems fitting because Eccles wrote in his psych records. What did he say? Wolves eat sheep or something like yeah. that. Yeah, it comes up a lot. It also came up in the Menendez case. It comes oh, really? up a lot uh, with with killers They're identifying wolves. as wolves, and and the people are just sheep. Gotcha. But I find that I find that oftentimes that uh, the followers or the fans of these murderers are, have some sheep like characteristics. Interesting. Makes sense. Yeah, I recommend the podcast and Gary Meese's books. Um, what else? Do we, what I would. I would recommend your book, Highway, too. It's well, very thanks. good. Thank you very much. Also available on Amazon. Fine bookstores everywhere. Um, this is an interesting one. This picture of them with John Douglas. And Damien Eccles has this black dragon tattoo on his arm. That's a, that's a cult tattoo. And on the table is a couple tarot decks. And John Douglas is just sitting there chatting along. Supposedly has a lot of respect. And it's interesting just to bring up kind of the experts that Bob Ruff mentions. He almost deifies these kind of paid, paid experts like Douglas and Werner Spitz 
I mean, I just like fell out of my chair when he was talking about them, like as if they were objective, honest people. So, um, but just something else. You guys want to comment on the experts or anything? Anybody know much about Werner Spitz? He's a single bullet theorist of the, you know, JFK, which tells me all I need to, all I need to know. And also, yeah, someone just argued with me about that. Uh, someone just left me a comment about how I, I don't have my facts straight about the wounds, that they never said that all the wounds came from turtles. And then you cut to Werner Spitz's, you know, his report, and it's all the wounds came from turtles, including, you know, um, he's talking about, you know. Well, they both, both two of the boys had severe cranial wounds, right? Which means that the, the pre Neolithic snapping turtles carried sticks or something, right? I mean, right. And the, and the bleeding, how, how they bled to death and, you know, meaning that they ate them alive. I mean, it's just crazy. Crazy, right. So, I mean, that's another of the contradictions of Ruff's investigation is that he says it's all done by turtles, but the buyer's kid who, you know, yeah, you're right. It just doesn't want it. It's contradiction. It's, it's a blatant contradiction. But so, then when they're wrong, it doesn't matter. Right. It's it not matter. important. Not important. Contradictions don't matter. I still, no. And if I remember correctly, when Spitz made his statement in this kind of pseudo public relations uh, uh, thing that involved Douglas and the lawyer Reardon, I could have swore he had said that he agreed with everything that Peretti and the other guy came up with. He just had a different interpretation. Do you guys remember Spitz saying that? Because if that's the case, that means that it's even worse for Ruff's in- interpretation of that. If Spitz <laughs> says, well, I think it's a different, right. different interpretation. I don't. I think that he said that. I got to go find that. One of, one of the things he, uh, speaking of Peretti, um, today he did qualify his understanding of the the Peretti testimony to clarify that he understood that Peretti was basically forced into setting this this possible, based on the forensic evidence that the time of death was between one and some other time in the early morning. And uh, of course, Peretti was forced into that based on these uh, forensic parameters that he said actually just really didn't apply. But since he was forced to testify to that, that effect, that's what he testified to. But, um, uh, he earlier had rough had earlier suggested that John Fogelman, the assistant prosecutor had, uh, tried to, uh, persuade the jury through deception by using later times to to push the time of the death back that would get closer to the Peretti testimony. Well, if you actually look at what Fogelman actually said in the closing his closing argument, he said that the time of death was between I think six thirty and eight, more than likely, which is the t- same time that he'd said all along. There was no pushing back on the time. He basically just simply misrepresented what Fogelman said. I, you know, uh, I, I, this is bound to have been pointed out to him. It certainly was discussed on these various pages, uh, Facebook pages. And, you know, he makes no attempt to correct this sort of thing. He just lets it stand. He allowed uh, 
this uh, people, these readers to write in and suggest that maybe um, one of the Hollingsworth family, the Anthony Hollingsworth, that maybe he was a viable suspect. <laughs> because, oh, you know, and, and, and that uh, Richard Simpson, who was LG Hollingsworth's friend, was maybe a viable suspect. And today it was, um, who was it that might be? A, oh, a scout leader. Is he going to look into the scout leaders and, and, <laughs> and see if maybe they might be involved? Uh, this is, hey, yeah. this is dangerous. It's irresponsible. And, uh, it's and it's laughable. I mean, I, except the only thing is, is that these, there are real people who are being pointed at, and and some of these people are still living, and they're being pointed at as if they might be potential suspects, and they're not. They never have been. It's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. it's irresponsible. Yeah, really irresponsible. Oh, grossly irresponsible. But don't, don't you think it also comes from a larger? Um, I don't know, a, like a um, sort of a view of life when you take on these innocent positions of convicted murderers. You know, people who support one murder are more likely to support another, and that even if they really did can can are really guilty, it doesn't matter so much because our justice system is so terrible, and they have no respect for law enforcement or you know what I mean the legal system. So mm-hmm. they put themselves in the position of a rebel, sort of a persona that goes along with these innocent type podcasts. Do you, am I, am I being too confusing or no, not at all? No. It's true. I think it's actually an interesting, I bet all these people who listen to Bob Ruff think that making of a murder, that guy Avery's innocent, that Knox is innocent, that right. Adnan Syed is innocent, that Eccles is innocent, that all these people have been railroaded, and they're different, and all the incriminating evidence is fake. So if Adnan Syed writes, I want to kill, or Knox is lying, prevaricating, or Avery has his fingerprint on a, on a bone of his car, on the car of the girl that was murdered, it's all a setup. You know, it's all the cops are doing. So, so I think that, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's scary to think that there's a significant proportion of the population that will hurt together. And I do think that a lot of the people who they lack the facility or, or capacity to engage in critical analysis where they can actually pick something up and read it themselves. And I think that, that once people actually start reading uh, things associated with all those cases, they'll realize that these people are, are not uh, the innocent white doves they, they're portrayed as. Also, a documentary is looked at as a documentary, but really these documentaries were pieces of entertainment, you yeah. know, <laughs> how to entertain, not as so much. Some documentaries really are out to inform and, and some are out to entertain and it gets in a tricky and some to do both, you know, but this is a really tricky situation where uh, people can't believe that they, they would be lied to by a documentary. True. Sure. It's true. It should be I mean, I think that they, that's the Hollywoodization or this kind of uh, this kind of drift from the integrity that a lot of these producers and creators are looking at the bottom line. They've got to sell product for the cost that they've spent, so they're going to create you know fake narratives or create things that uh, discrepancies or or bring up interesting. And it goes back to serial. It's not just the documentaries; it's the podcast too. They've got to come up with the an interesting hook to get people in. You know? 
Right. There was a, right. There was, there was a series, a brief series on um, net, that's still on Netflix called Evil Genius, which is really quite interesting. And I was really taken with it, and I thought it was really well done. And then I read read some some stories about it, and it said that um, one of their inspirations was the Paradise Lost movies. And I'm thinking that that movie is is being used as a paradise. Kind of disappoint. I was kind of disappointed to hear that that movie. And this that in this case is used as a paradigm for all these other cases. I mean, it, it it is sort of the gold standard that people go back to, and it's not really a gold standard, but that is that's is how it's viewed. This is the original documentary that really opened the doors of justice to all these poor innocent people who are being thrown into death row for no good reason except they were wearing black t-shirts and listening yeah. to my scary, man. It's really kind of scary. I- yeah, I wasn't case. surprised by that because I I loved Evil Genius, but at the end, not I don't want to spoil it, spoil it, but there is an innocence, you know, slant at the end to exonerate the bomber himself, and the investigators are like, no, there's so much evidence that they don't go into, uh, besides the um, I can't Jessica Hoopsick's word. You know, right. again, not under oath in the middle of the night filmed for whatever reason, you know, to make the family happy, I guess. So, you know, there's you can really I could I wasn't surprised when I read that it was inspired by um, Paradise Lost movies, because there is that that angle to it, you know, of we know better. We as documentarians know better than the FBI who looked into this, right. you know, and the evidence that they put together. Um, I got a question from the chat, and it's a great question. Is all look at all the sponsors that Bob Ruff has? He has very you know reputable businesses, Omaha Steaks, etc. Who he is advertising for while doing what I I believe, in my opinion, is a disingenuous treatment of the facts. I mean, what what are your guys' thoughts about these sponsorships? How much money is he bringing in, and why why don't they have a more critical? Uh, analysis of, of what's going on in this whole Bob Ruff situation. Anybody want to comment on that? Well, I'll show you how little we care about victims in this country. You know? I mean, a sponsor won't attach themselves to anyone controversial, you know? But these sponsors of someone who says they're doing a podcast for the victim, but really when he's out to exonerate, twice convicted triple child killers, you would think that that would someone they wouldn't want to put their name behind, but no props. That's a really great point. Yeah. It's, it's remarkable. There was a time, I think Eccles was invited to some, some good thing convention or something sponsored by FedEx and they pulled a plug on him. I think somebody complained or things like that. There was another one where it, it, it was, it was, it was FedEx in Memphis. Yes, that's right. I, I was one of the, wrote some stories about that at the time. Okay. I was and, uh, and the the fact is is that, you know, the, the news stories, there are enough people in Memphis who believe that he indeed killed these children that it, it that the idea that he's just this innocent innocent guy who just was thrown into jail for no good reason just doesn't wash with them and there was a huge backlash and FedEx backed out of it. Um, yeah, yeah, I they were, that's, that's one they were, they were, corporate sponsor. Perfectly willing to do it before, so before any of the backlash, they were perfectly willing to have him on because they just, they just, you know, they didn't study the case. They just 
thought this would be great to have this innocent guy giving this talk. Yeah, I remember call it, calling a bookstore and saying, you know, where Eccles was, was reading from his book and saying, you know, you know that guy wasn't exonerated. You know he's a convicted child killer. He's on parole. You know that, right? And they were like, no, we don't know that. Really? <laughs> so I, you, Gary's right. You know, people don't know. Well, there's another. They, they ride on the PR. Yeah. Enough people think, you know, he's enough innocence. And did you look at the, the Innocence Project page where they describe the false confession of Jesse Miss Kelly and they go through how it's a textbook example of a false confession? No, I didn't know. I didn't see that. Yeah, yeah. it's a whole, I'll, I'll send it to you. It's like a whole page. And so the Innocence Project, which is a revered you know organization, has no trouble putting out false information. They, they put out that false information, but they won't take them as an Innocence Project case. That should say something. So they probably did their homework from that. Whoa. I don't think we can win this, especially um, if they already signed an Alfred plea, you know. But one other case was another one. If you remember the Yoga Works fiasco, Magic on the Mat, out here in L.A., I don't know if you guys remember that thing, but he was working with, you know, kind of a well-known yoga teacher. Her name was Corn or something, and he was going to do Magic on the Mat thing, yoga <laughs> magic, and that was another one that got canceled. Yoga Works said, whoop. This guy's convicted, and they pulled they pulled the plug on that. And uh, yeah, William Ramsey, how dare you misrepresent that? That was rescheduled. That was postponed due to scheduling conflicts. Now, please, definitely postponed. Not- <laughs> so that was a, you know, so people I'm were kidding. You know what I mean? I think that they put out some kind of statement like that. We'll, well never say that the guy's a trip. That the guy's like a triple child killer, and it's scary. They just you know cancel it because of what you know what I mean. If you want to see how so the this kind of how people can change and flip, there was one where there's a, a video on YouTube of this woman corn restating the whole fake narrative. These three guys were wearing black shirts. They got arrested. They were thrown in jail for a crime, and she just repeated. And then all of a sudden. The whole thing got canceled, and then she put another one out saying, well, Damien Eccles is a special guy, a beautiful person, and beautiful people is like a code word. You know, uh, Manson uses it like if you're, you know, in the occult or something like that. So she she got she got just the gist of what's going on and changed her tune. She was telling a real different story after that got canceled. But there are pictures of them before the cancellation where she's got his hand on his chest and some kind of, semi-romantic look i can put this yeah 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 but the yoga class itself is amazing the of of damien eccles teaching the class sharing his great wisdom with the the class doing yoga it is one of the creepiest pieces of footage i've ever seen you know and and women it was mostly women in a women's space and having a child killer lead it it really really it's like a killer gynecologist or something. Nauseous. Speaking of the Innocence Project, though, you know, uh, indeed, specifically DNA, uh, I, I don't think it could be emphasized enough that the three killers had the opportunity to present new evidence. We're going to have the new opportunity to present new evidence to the courts and have their have their case reviewed and and possibly get new trials and that was within eh, even if they bumped it back a year or two that was it was not going to be you know as court court cases tend to go maybe it wouldn't have happened that december but um they stood a very good chance of getting uh, 
new trials ordered and with some possibility considering of things with unproven allegations of juror, mis, of juror misconduct, which really doesn't speak to their guilt at all. But, you know, yeah. anyway, they but, uh, you know, there was a good possibility they were going to get new trials and maybe get exonerated. And instead of instead of that, they chose they their defense team goes to the prosecution to Scott Ellington, who was new on the job, who was not a veteran prosecutor, as I've heard him referred to at some point. He only been he'd been an assistant prosecutor for four years or so. And he had uh, and, and, you know, offered this this idea of this Alfred plea just to make things easy on everybody. And, and honestly, it was the, an easy way out for them. For, for the for the state, um, they were perfect. Scott Ellington was perfectly willing to bear the criticism because he was getting criticism every day anyway. And um, from all the people who claimed he was in, uh, these kids were innocent. These men, they're not kids. And uh, but, you know, if they actually had good DNA evidence, why wouldn't they have taken it to the courts and shown it? And why why have they not released that this new evidence sense. I mean, it's there. There's no law prohibiting them from sharing with the world that if they have this exonerating evidence, I haven't seen it yet, and neither has anybody else. Right. Well, that's a great point, because this whole thing about Terry Hobbs's hair has been bandied about, but why hasn't a third party been able to take a look at that? Right? Has anybody, has a third party ever confirmed that that, that so-called hair is actually in existence? No. So, yeah, see, that's the whole thing. So this is like... It's just like a phantasm. It's a mirage. Where's the so-called hair that's... And then, obviously, you know, and then they distort. They say publicly, oh, it's the hair of Terry Hobbs. But, you know, so that's a, that's a very telling point. You make a great point there, Harry. But we are coming close to the end. We're four minutes down, left till 6 o'clock. Do you guys want to add anything else, Gary? Go check out Gary's books on Amazon, Roberta Glass's podcast. Anything else, Gary? Uh, no, uh, I accept I would encourage everybody to listen in this Sunday and hear. Uh, I would ordinarily not suggest you tune into Bob Ruff, but this Sunday, if he, he's actually going to have Lisa O'Brien on there, that should be a great interview. I, I did an interview with Lisa on her show a month or two ago, and she is very, very knowledgeable about this case. Absolutely. And it should be a great interview. Thank you. What's Lisa O'Brien's um, uh, podcast name? Is it? Remember? Clear and convincing. Clear and convincing. Check that out as well. Gary Meese, thank you so much for spending thank time you. today. Roberta, would you like to add anything? No, it's been a real pleasure. I love talking about this stuff. So Yeah, so thank you guys. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Hopefully you got some good information. There were three different question feeds on the Hangout. There's a Hangout at YouTube and Facebook, so it was hard to keep up with everything. But uh, maybe we can do it again sometime in the future. Thank you all for being on the show. Have a good night.